0: Well, I heard a great story recently about a medical missionary over in China. He was working in a remote region in China and this man was an eye surgeon and he had gone to China to perform uh, cataract surgeries, uh, helping to restore sight to these uh, blind Chinese uh, peasants who were in this remote area. One of these uh, individuals that he had performed a surgery on uh, completely recovered his sight. And and this blind Chinese farmer, he was so thrilled, so overjoyed that he could see after years of of being blind that he went back to his village out in the countryside and, and he started telling all of his friends that he was blind but now he could see again. Well, this medical missionary, he, uh, he was uh, doing his work in his clinic and a few days had gone by and, and uh, a few days after performing the surgery on this Chinese farmer, he looked out the window of his makeshift operating room, this bamboo-framed window, and sure enough, out in the distance, he saw this blind or formerly blind Chinese farmer making his way back towards the clinic. But the farmer wasn't alone. The farmer had a rope and behind him in single file holding on to this rope was a group of other blind chinese individuals who were coming to meet this eye surgeon who had restored sight to their friend you know it's very interesting this this poor farmer he didn't understand the physiology of the eye he, he couldn't explain all the technicalities of the operation but what he did know was that he used to be blind, but now he could see. And he couldn't help but share this news with with everyone in his whole village, his whole region. And, and, And what was so incredible is that that was all these other blind folks needed to hear. And they had to go and find this doctor for themselves. And you know, friends, it's the same way in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. We may not understand everything in the scriptures. We, we might not be great theologians. We might not even be the, the, the best examples of faithful Christian living. But you know something? Every single one of us here this morning can share the good news of what Christ has done for us. And friends, that's what we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks in our journey through Acts chapters 1 through 11. We're going to be starting this new series called the revolution begins. Looking at the call that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given us to take the good news into all the world, to share with other blind people that we were once blind, but now we can see. We were once trapped in our, in our guilt in our shame, enslaved by sin, but we met somebody who liberated us, who freed us from all of that and brought us into new life. And so this is what this new teaching series is all about. The the gospel revolution. The revolution that began after Jesus' resurrection from the grave and when he empowered his church with the Holy Spirit. And they embraced this call, this mission to take the good news to the ends of the earth. Friends, we're going to see how God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, ignited a revolution that literally changed the course. Of human history. So we're going to be in the book of Acts over the next three months. This is going to take us through the end of May. And the book of Acts, as I mentioned earlier, is really a second part to the gospel of Luke. Both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke. And we know a little bit about Luke from the New Testament. He's mentioned about four times and we know that he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 4 actually tells us that that Luke was a surgeon, a physician. And and as a doctor, he was obviously highly educated. And so he was well qualified to record for us a, a history of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, but then the early advance of the Christian church. Now Luke wrote his gospel along with the book of Acts to an individual named Theophilus. He, he opens his books, both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, by, by referencing this gentleman, Theophilus. And we surmise that Theophilus was very likely a convert to Christianity, a, a Gentile, a Roman convert, probably somebody of high standing in Roman society. And Theophilus used his own wealth. He commissioned Luke to write the gospel and the book of Acts so that not only he but others would have an early record of the life of Christ and the advance of the early church. Now, Now, isn't that awesome to think about? I mean, we could preach a whole sermon just on that point alone. Here's this guy, a Gentile, a Roman, who becomes a follower of Jesus. He's convinced that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that was promised, that he died, he rose from the grave, that he ascended into heaven, that he reigns today. He became so convinced of that that he was willing to invest his own money, his own resources in compiling a historical record for us so that we, too, could come to faith in Jesus. What an incredible model. Friends, every single one of us can contribute to the great mission that we've been given. Here's this guy, Theophilus, right? God didn't call him to be the Apostle Paul. He didn't call him to go to the ends of the earth. But you know what? He did call him to use his treasure to make an investment for all of eternity by commissioning these two books that we're blessed to have today. And so Luke wrote this book for this man named Theophilus. What's really interesting, the book of Acts, along with the gospel of Luke, were probably written no later than 64 A.D. So we're talking roughly 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so for a historical record, these were very early documents. They were written and being passed out in the lifetime of of those who were still around who had seen the life of Christ, his death, and his resurrection with their own eyes. So we have a very trustworthy historical account here in the book of Acts about the spread of the early church. Now, for our series in the book of Acts, uh, as I mentioned when we started our last series in the book of Micah, we're going to be using a a variety of Bible translations here over over the next year. And uh, during our Micah series, we preach through the Christian Standard Bible. For our series in the book of Acts, we're going to be using the English Standard Version, the ESV translation. So if you're interested in getting a copy of that or you want to download it on your app, uh, a Bible app or something, we're going to be in the English Standard Version translation through our series in the book of Acts. Now this morning what I want to do is I want to read for us the first chapter, We're not going to be able to read the entire chapter as we go through the whole series, but today, this is so foundational to to everything that we believe and are as the church that I want to read the whole chapter, and then I want to come back, and I want to identify three aspects that are at the heart of the gospel revolution. Three things, three foundational pieces to the revolution that we've been called to as God's people. So if you want to follow along, the, the words will be on the screens behind me. I'm reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. Luke starts out, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, And as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, And Peter said, "'Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, "'which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand "'by the mouth of David concerning Judas, "'who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. "'For he was numbered among us "'and was allotted his share in this ministry. "'Now this man acquired a field "'with the reward of his wickedness, "'and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle "'and all his bowels gushed out.'" And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. It's quite a chapter outlining for us the early days of the church following Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And this morning what I want to do is I want to highlight for us three aspects of the early church, three foundational commitments and beliefs that were at the heart of this gospel revolution. The the first thing that we see at the heart of the revolution here in Acts chapter 1 is that the early church was founded upon a Messiah who was risen a Messiah who was risen. Luke tells us at the outset of his history of the early church that the foundation of the gospel revolution that began 2,000 years ago was the reality of a resurrected Savior. Friends, Jesus was more than just a great teacher of morality. He was more than just a social justice revolutionary. Yes, he was those things, but friends, the world has had many people who were great teachers. The world has had many great social revolutionaries. But what made Jesus different from them all is that Jesus Christ claimed to be God in human flesh. And he verified that claim by conquering the grave, by rising from the dead, by proving his deity to his followers. And friends, the claims of Christianity have always been based on the testimony that Jesus Christ defeated death and conquered the grave. He is a living Savior. That's the foundation of our faith. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Friends, what are we doing here this morning? Why did I wake up at 6 a.m. to go out and shovel my driveway to get here to church if all of this is in vain? But you see, the reality is it's not in vain. For 2,000 years, believers have gathered on Sunday mornings to worship a risen, glorified king who reigns today bodily from his throne in heaven. And Jesus Christ is going to return one day, not as some ghost, not as some invisible spirit, but physically, in bodily form, just as he was elevated into heaven. Because he's a risen, resurrected Savior. And friends, Luke also, just like Paul, recognized the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He saw how central this was to everything we believe. And so here in his record to Theophilus and anyone else who would read this book of Acts, here in verse 3, Luke confirms for us that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. In verse 3, Luke says, "...he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God." What were these many proofs? How did Jesus prove his resurrection to his followers? Well, friends, we have examples in the Gospels of the many proofs that Jesus gave. We have the story of Jesus appearing to Doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas, I don't believe it. I can't believe it, it's not true. And Jesus appears and says, Thomas, touch the wounds in my palms. Touch the wound in my side. See that I am flesh and bone. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. And Thomas touched Jesus, his physical body. He saw the wounds and he recognized that Jesus had risen from the grave. He no longer doubted, but he believed. We have stories like that in Luke 24 of of Jesus walking along the road with his disciples, walking side by side on the road to Emmaus, teaching his followers. And they recognized that it was Jesus. They came to see that it was the risen Messiah. They even said our hearts burned within us as we walked along the road with him. We have stories in John 21 and Luke 24 of Jesus eating with his disciples. Friends, a ghost doesn't eat. But here Jesus prepares breakfast for them on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, come and sit with me and have some fish. Because he was risen, a body of flesh and bone. And then in Acts 1, Luke here tells us that for 40 days, Jesus revealed himself to his followers. As risen for 40 days. Friends, what else took place during, during those 40 days? I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. Well, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is John 21 25. Friends, just think about it. This is how John ends his gospel. He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. What did Jesus do during those 40 days? Man, I tell you what, when I get to heaven, you want to know what I'm going to ask God, my first question? I want to know about those 40 days. I want to know all about that other stuff that you didn't even write in the book. Because the stuff that we got is pretty incredible. But John tells us Jesus did many other things. And he convinced his followers that he had risen from the grave. Now, we're 2,000 years down the road. We don't have the privilege of being eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And so, today, many people, skeptics, and even people in the church, they ask the question, but how do we really know it's all true? Have you ever wondered that, friends? I've wondered that. How do we really know it's all true? Well, friends, what we do is we look at the evidence and we make an inference to the most reasonable conclusion. We got to look at the evidence. You know, a couple of weeks ago I was out in Boulder, Colorado. And, and I want you to just picture this with me. Let's say we were all out in Colorado together today and we were taking a road trip, and as we drove through the mountains, we came across this scene. Now when you see this picture, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? You're probably thinking there's got to be a forest fire back there, right? How many of you are thinking forest fire this morning? right? But friends, think about this. Are there not other explanations for that smoke out in the distance? Right? I mean, what if there's a factory back there behind the mountain that we can't see and it's just spewing up smoke? Right? What if there's a high school football stadium and they just had a big football game and they launched off a bunch of pyrotechnics? Right? I mean, there's other possible explanations for the smoke that we see in the distance. But then we keep driving. And we come across a whole bunch of animals running out of the forest. They're running down the hillsides. They're coming across the road. They're leaping over fences. And now we start thinking, hmm, this is kind of interesting. But, you know, there's other explanations, right? Maybe there's a group of hunters up there in the hills chasing the animals out. But then we drive a little bit further. And pretty soon we see this helicopter fly overhead. But it's no ordinary helicopter. It's dragging a big bucket of water. And now we start thinking, all right, this is, something's got to be going on, right? But maybe it's just a training exercise. I mean, who knows, right? So we drive a little bit further down the road, and then we come across this group of firefighters. And they're marching with all their tools and their equipment. And pretty soon, after seeing all of this, friends, the most reasonable conclusion becomes that there's got to be a forest fire, Right? We look at the evidence and we make an inference to the most reasonable conclusion. And friends, this is exactly what we do when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to look at the evidence. And so we start with the evidence. We start with the evidence of an empty tomb. Friends, nobody ever disputed the notion of an empty tomb. The Jews, the Romans, and the Christians, they all agreed that the tomb was empty. There is no early historical account of anyone disputing the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. And then we have the evidence of the eyewitnesses. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, he gives us a long list of names, and then he tells us that there was an appearance of Jesus where he showed up to over 500 of the brothers at the same time. Now in the ancient world, they never recorded women in their testimony. So so if they had been counting our worship service this morning, for example, they would have said, well, there were about 200 men there. But we know that in this setting, there was probably another 200 women with us as well. And so when Paul says there were 500 brothers who saw Jesus at the same time, we can surmise that there were probably an equal number of women, maybe children as well. So now we're talking upwards of 1,000 people who saw Jesus alive, risen in the same moment, Keep in mind, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 only 15 years after the resurrection, which meant all of those eyewitnesses, most of them were still around. If anybody doubted the story, they could go ask them themselves. So we have the empty tomb, we have the eyewitnesses, and then we have the evidence of changed lives. The disciples who who go from hiding after Jesus' arrest fearful, timid, cowardly, to just a few weeks later boldly standing in the middle of the temple courts proclaiming that Jesus, who all of you crucified, is now risen and reigns in heaven. Friends, they were so convinced that Jesus had risen from the grave, 11 of the 12 disciples would go to their deaths as martyrs, never once renouncing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that when the early church gathered, even Jesus' brothers were present. That's fascinating because in the Gospels we're told that Jesus' brothers thought he was crazy. They didn't want anything to do with him. And yet, just after the resurrection, here the brothers are praying and worshiping with the early church. How do you explain that change? Not only that, but we have brothers of Jesus like James who would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He would go on to write the book of James. He was so convinced that his brother, Jesus, was the Messiah risen from the grave that when the Jews came and asked him to renounce his faith in Jesus, James says I'm never going to renounce my faith in Jesus and they took him to the top of the temple. They threw him off the top of the temple. He survived the fall so they proceeded to stone him to death and never once during that time did James say okay this is all a scam we made it all up and then you have the guy a guy like the apostle Paul who started out as Saul a zealous persecutor of the of the early church he got permission from the Jewish Sanhedrin to travel all over the Middle East arresting Christians shutting down churches he was complicit in the murder of, of numerous people in the early church, including Stephen, who we're going to read about in a couple weeks, the first martyr. And yet Paul, Saul, in his hatred of the church would eventually be transformed, taking the name of Paul, becoming the greatest champion of early Christianity that we know of. Friends, how do you account for these changed lives? Unless, as these individuals themselves tell us, They saw the resurrected Savior. And then you have the example of the rapid growth of the early church in the first century. Friends, in a hostile climate, a hostile Jewish culture that that wanted nothing to do with, with, with a new movement like Christianity. The Jews actively persecuting the church. And then you have the the occupying Roman Empire. They didn't want the Christian church to grow and spread. They openly oppressed and persecuted the church. And yet, we know within a few short years, the church began to spread throughout the Middle East and North Africa like a wildfire. How do you account for the rapid spread of the early church? Friends, pretty soon the evidence just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting. And the only reasonable conclusion is that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Friends, when you look at the reality of the gospel revolution that was ignited 2,000 years ago, there's only one explanation that makes sense in light of all the evidence that Jesus Christ rose. He's a living Savior. He's our reigning King today. And you want to know something this morning? The revolution that began 2,000 years ago, this revolution that began in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is still on the march today. It's still on the move today, transforming hearts, bringing hope to the hopeless, fighting injustice around the world, and piercing the darkness with the truth of God's grace and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I'll tell you something this morning. No other revolution in history can compare to the gospel revolution of Jesus Christ. And it's all because this revolution is founded upon a risen and living Savior. And it's that truth that continues to propel the Jesus movement around the world and throughout history. And it can't be stopped. Because Jesus says, even the gates of hell will not stand against us. He's going to build his church. We worship a risen king. Secondly, this morning, Luke tells us at the heart of this revolution, not only do we have a Messiah risen, but secondly, we have a mission received. We have a mission received. Friends, we've been given our marching orders by our king, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8 with me in Acts chapter 1. Luke records Jesus saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Friends, this final teaching of Jesus to his disciples is known as the Great Commission. And do you want to know something? All four of the Gospels record a version of the Great Commission. Probably the most famous recording of the Great Commission was given to us by Matthew in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew records Jesus saying these words, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, this is the Great Commission. This is our mission. These are our marching orders. This is the command that Jesus gave his church to fulfill while he reigns from heaven until the day he returns. We are called to go and make disciples. Sadly, though, many people in the church today have lost sight of this mission. George Barna, the the famous Christian pollster, this past year, 2018, in his annual survey of the state of the American church, you want to know what he found? He found that 51% of United States churchgoers were unfamiliar with the Great Commission. 51% of people in our churches on Sunday morning don't know what the Great Commission is. Friends, why is the church losing ground in our culture today? It's because we don't even know the mission. If you don't know the mission, you're going to be lost. You're going to be rudderless. Friends, may Lakes Free never be a church that answers a survey and says, "Uh, duh, I don't know what the Great Commission is. This is our calling. This is why we exist. It's to spread the gospel to all people throughout the whole world. This is the mission Jesus gave us. Now there are many people in our world today who would deny this mission. They would say that this mission is irrelevant. They would say that this mission has no meaning. In fact, many people would say people don't need Jesus. You may have seen slogans like like the coexist bumper stickers that are so popular today. Using the various symbols of the different world religions, oh, can't we just all coexist? Couldn't we all just get along and, and we'll all just be happy and live at peace with one another? Friends, this idea comes out of the philosophy of relativism that says all truth is relative. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth." And because of that, you know what? It doesn't matter what religion you follow. All religions are basically the same. All roads lead to God. All that matters is that you sincerely follow one of them. That's what our world proclaims today. That's what many churches proclaim today. All roads lead to God. One path's as good as another. But friends, I want you to notice something here. Look again at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says go therefore and make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now friends this is a very strange commandment if people are okay apart from Jesus Christ. Why go and make disciples of all nations? Why teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded us if they're okay just as they are? If they're okay following the teachings of Muhammad or okay following the Four Noble Truths of Buddha or okay following Krishna? Why bother going to the ends of the earth with this message if people are okay as they are? But you see, the reality is they're not okay. Okay. And the king who made us, who created us, who verified that by rising from the grave told us that people need to hear the hope of the gospel. People need Jesus because they're not okay without Jesus. Romans 3.23 says that every single one of us has sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, not even one. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. Death. Eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through what? Through who? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the way. He's the hope. He's the answer. Friends, people need Jesus. There's no hope without Jesus. And this is why Jesus came to this world. This is why he willingly went to the cross. He did it because he knew there was no other way. He did it because he loved us. He did it because he wanted to provide a way for every single man and woman on this planet to be saved. People need Jesus. Now I want us to look again at verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Friends, I love this not-so-subtle rebuke here, right? These guys, right, they're watching Jesus go up into heaven. They've just been given their marching orders, but they're staring up into heaven, and these angels come and said, dude, what are you guys doing? You got your marching orders. Go get it now. Get on with it. These disciples, they needed this uh, angelic kick in the pants, if you will. I think some of us could use an angelic kick in the pants to get back on the mission that God's given us. Friends, you want to know what the number one challenge facing the church is today? It's not secularism. It's not liberal theology. It's not cultural immorality. The number one challenge facing the church today is we've got too many people standing around looking up into heaven and not enough people living on mission. That's our problem. And I love the, if you were here at our apologetics conference last week, and I love the challenge J. Warner Wallace gave us in his last session on Saturday morning. Remember his challenge? He said, look, we're not here to entertain you this weekend. Don't just come to five years of apologetics conferences and not do anything with the information we're teaching you. He said, go out and do something with it. Use it. Share the good news. Tell people about the hope that we have in Christ. Friends, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here this morning. You will have all eternity to not tell anyone about Jesus. You know that? You'll have all eternity. You won't have to tell anyone there about Jesus. It's the one thing you can't do in heaven. You can't share the gospel. So make your time in this life count. Follow our marching orders and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's why we exist as a church. It goes all the way very back to the very beginning, 34 years ago. Why does Lakes Free Church exist? We believe that God has placed us in the Chicago Lakes area to be a loving, biblical, relevant witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And if we ever forget that, friends, this place is dead. Now, if we're going to live on mission, we're going to need to have some fundamentals in place. All right, I I remember growing up in Eden Prairie, I played football from fourth grade through high school. And in Eden Prairie, football's a big deal, right? Since 1996, we've won 11 out of 22 state championships. Okay, how do we do that in Eden Prairie? We do it by emphasizing the fundamentals. From the time you're in fourth grade all the way through senior year in high school, all you do is you practice the fundamentals. And our coaches will tell you. Coach Mike Grant, Bud Grant's son, he'll tell you, look, we're not going to be the flashiest team out there. But you know what? We're going to beat everybody else because we're going to be better than everybody else at doing the basics. And if we can do the basics better than everybody else, we're going to beat everybody else. And so we win championships. That's what we do. Now, I didn't win one, my class never won one, but my brother, my brother, he won two championships and he never, never lets me forget it. (laughs) But we got to focus on the fundamentals. And you see, in the same way, Luke shows us that the early church was built upon a strong core of fundamentals. And so here in Acts chapter 1, he gives us a model revealed, a model revealed. And I'm just going to go through these points real quickly this morning Luke tells us here at the end of Acts chapter 1, he says that a church on mission is a church united in three things. Number one, a commitment to prayer. Number two, a confidence in Scripture. And number three, a certainty in God's sovereignty. A commitment to prayer, a confidence in Scripture, a certainty in God's sovereignty. And friends, we see this here in Acts chapter 1, 12 through 26. Where is the early church when they head back to Jerusalem? They're in the upper room, all in one accord, united in prayer. And they're praying. And as the great revivalist J. Edwin Orr once noted, no great spiritual awakening has ever begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer, Christians persistently praying for revival. And so we find the early church here, and they're praying. And what does God do in answer to their prayers? He shows up, we're going to see next week, and he empowers them with the Holy Spirit and they go on and they change the world. 120 people. It might have been a small church, but they believed in a very big God. And so they prayed and they prayed in expectation and the Holy Spirit shows up and pretty soon the church blows up and spreads like a wildfire. It couldn't be contained and it began with people united in prayer. Friends, what if our church began to pray like that? What if we began to pray for revival here in Chisago Lakes? Friends, we, we give up so easily today. Oh, the, the world's do, the done for. The, you know, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Our culture's lost forever. We're never going to recover. Don't you think some of those early Christians might have thought that too? I mean, you think we've got it bad? They had real oppression. They had people being dragged into jail, thrown into the Colosseum, being torn apart by lions. Friends, we got it easy today, and we give up. All oh, the culture's lost. It's done for. What if we committed to praying, praying for revival, saying, Jesus, bring revival back to our land. Change hearts and lives. God, use us to be your people and your ambassadors. And it starts with Prayer. Friends, we got to be a church united in prayer. We see here, secondly, a confidence in Scripture. Judas is dead. They only got 11 apostles. Jesus said, We need 12 apostles. You're going to reign with me on 12 thrones over the new earth, Jesus said, in the millennial kingdom. You're going to reign. But there's only 11 of us, so we need 12. So what did they do? They went to Scripture. Peter stands up and he quotes the psalm, Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-five, Psalm one hundred nine, verse eight. He goes to the psalms and he says, "Look at the psalms told us Judas was going to disappear. Let his camp be desolate. Let there be no one there to dwell in it. But then the psalms also tells that another was supposed to take his office." Peter went to scripture, friends. That's important to recognize. Because think about this, Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit hasn't come. But what do we have? We have the Word of God. And so they go to the Word. And the Word was the foundation of the church from the very beginning. And that's why it's still our foundation today. Because Peter believed, just like I hope every single one of us here today believes, Psalm 119, 105, Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And even when my King is in heaven and when the Holy Spirit hasn't yet come upon me, I can still know God's truth because I have his revealed word. I have the scripture. Friends, the scripture's always been our foundation. That's why we stand on the word of God every Sunday morning here at Lakes Free. And then thirdly, we see that they had a certainty in God's sovereignty. Look what what Luke tells us, Peter says, verse 24, and they prayed and they said, you Lord, you know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. They prayed to the Lord, show us which one of these two men you have chosen. It wasn't their choice. It wasn't Justice or Matthias. It wasn't their choice. It was God's choice. He had already selected them. And so they cast lots. Well, wait a minute, Jason. I thought you said God chose these guys. What are they doing casting lots, like throwing dice? Well, that's what they used to discern God's will. But you know something? It wasn't random chance. You know how I know that? Because Proverbs 16:33 16, 16, says that the lot is cast, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. There's no chance in this world, friends. We have a sovereign God who rules and reigns over everything. And so when they cast lots and the lot came to Matthias, they recognized that this was God's sovereign will. He chose it. And they trusted in God's sovereignty. Friends, I'll tell you something. These three priorities are the lifeblood of a healthy church. They're like air, food, and water to the body. And without any one of them, we will perish. In fact, you show me any dead or dying church today, and I will bet my house on it that they took their eyes off of one or more of these three fundamentals of the faith. Now, if you haven't quite figured it out yet, this series in the book of Acts is going to challenge us. You see, the reality is Christ has given us our marching orders. The revolution is on, friends. And now the choice is up to us. What kind of people do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be? I pray that we decide to be a church on mission. It's what this church was founded for. It's what we've lived for for 34 years. And over my dead body, will we do anything else but stay committed to the mission that God has given us? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much that we have this incredible book, this history of the early church, to inspire us, to encourage us, to cheer us on as we go out into this world this week to fulfill the marching orders that you've given us. You've called us, Lord, to take the hope of the gospel to all people. Lord, may we start even in our own neighborhood, in our own community, and then may we extend that vision to the very end of the earth, Lord. God, I pray that Lakes Free would be a church that continues to remain rooted and grounded on the biblical truths that we've discovered and looked at this morning, that we'd be committed to the mission that we've been given us, that we would always keep our hope and our resurrected King and Savior, and that in all of this, Lord, you would empower us as we're going to look at next week through your Holy Spirit, which you've given us to complete this mission. God, Let us be a people on the move, on the march, on mission together for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to have you stand for our benediction this morning from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, friends.